Welcome to the WorkSmart Podcast, a two-part podcast series special focusing on the Monetary Authority of Singapore's individual accountability regime that recently came into effect on the 10th of September 2021. In part one, we reviewed how MAS expects financial institutions to strengthen their senior manager accountability and promote a culture of ethical behaviour. In part two, Julie Pardy, WorkSmart's Director of Regulation and Market Engagement, reviews the expectations of the regulator for senior managers and material risk personnel in financial institutions to be fit and proper for their role. I start by asking Julie, what are the core components that make up a fitness and probity assessment firms should consider? With the MAS regime in Singapore, they have fitness and probity requirements that apply to two different types of individuals. So you've got your senior managers and then you've got your material risk takers. So there has previously been a requirement for fitness and probity, but maybe not on such a regular cycle as that which is going to be expected now. So the requirements and the guidelines look at the fact that, you know, in order to undertake a role, a firm should be checking one's fitness and probity at recruitment stage or at the point if somebody's being promoted into a particular role. And effectively, there are many similarities to the UK regime and others around the world because the fitness and probity requirements are threefold. So the first piece is honesty, integrity and reputation. The second is competence and capability. And the third is financial soundness. And I think I'd have a word of warning here because I know in the UK, when we were undertaking F&P assessments for wider communities, there was a a belief that F&P was around financial soundness. We're actually from a regulatory perspective, it's much wider than that. It's the person's background, it's their history in whatever career they've been in previously, and it's also the current competence and capability in their role. So for each of the component parts you've listed, how might financial institutions go about making their assessment of acceptability against each area? Well, as we've seen with the UK regime, everybody's approach has been in some respects different and in others consistent. So for example, with the honesty, integrity and and reputation, there is obviously that backdrop to previous employers and looking at any previous references, previous regulatory interaction. Some firms will actually look uh, at an individual's social media history and some of them will use a track back to look at qualifications declared and proof of such qualifications in terms of looking at at that honesty, integrity and reputation. And there's also likely to be some kind of self-assessment questionnaire where I'm signing up to I can confirm that across a whole wide areas of items that a firm would want to know prior to taking an individual on. Secondly, with the competence and capability, tends to be very different depending on what firm you're talking about. And in the UK, what we've seen is the performance appraisal processes are the backbone of that piece. So how is the individual doing in their role? Are they competent fit for purpose? That is aided by some 
individuals having additional regulatory requirements. But I suspect for the Singapore regime, it will be a combination of things like performance appraisal outcomes. It might be key performance indicators, depending on the role and whether they're fit for purpose or not. Some firm looks at mandatory training, had it been done and had it been done effectively and appropriately, because that all talks to capability. And so what you'll see is firms probably making wide-ranging decisions about this, some of which will be predicated on their existing systems and processes that they currently use. Because what I think regulators don't necessarily want to happen is for organisations to rewrite all their policies and procedures and, and not use existing processes that add value to this. And on the third point, the financial soundness. And typically, this tends to be a checklist questionnaire where a firm will make decisions about what questions they want to ask. So what elements of an individual's financial soundness do they think might risk poor behaviour in a role? And it tends to be thinking about that area will help drive out the questions that they might wish to use in that particular piece. But if it's any comfort to people listening, of all of the firms that we work with, they tend to have a slightly different take from the next firm that we talk to. Yeah, I would agree. How often do financial institutions need to assess fitness and probity for those individuals identified? So there's two points really with regards to the guidelines. So there's the one piece that is at recruitment or when you are promoting somebody into a role that has this requirement. So at the point in time that they enter into the role, is their fitness and probity of an acceptable level to the employer, first and foremost? And then secondly, what is the cycle which a firm might wish to then use to just keep on checking that this is okay? And typically that's expected to be annually or potentially more often depending on things that might happen. So for example, if you had a material risk taker that had fitness and probity requirements on an annual basis, but then during that year was to be promoted to a senior manager with additional accountabilities, it may be that at that point in time that the firm might require to do another assessment. But typically I think the regulator is looking for annual. Something that we've seen in the UK was in the first year where additional checks were required for additional personnel, they were very in-depth and they were what I would describe as all singing and all dancing. And then what we found latterly was that then firms move to a process maybe in the second or third years where they start with the self-assessment of the individual. So has anything changed in my circumstances since the previous assessment? Yes or no. And depending on what the answer was would trigger either a greater assessment process Mm. or a continuation of the self-assessment that was started by the individual. Absolutely agree with that. Um, Is there going to be a register of those assessed for FMP like there is in the UK? There is no requirement under the IAC regime in Singapore for there to be a register of those MRPs that are assessed for fitness and probity. So there won't be one as there is in the UK. So I think that's something that firms might be thankful for. (laughs) Yes, definitely relieved on. So what records might a firm keep to evidence the process and the assessments. You alluded to it in previous answers, but worth actually just going over. In the UK, 
it was evidencing F&P that many firms struggled to get their heads around. Yeah, it's such a critical piece because if the F&P assessment is negative, the job role connotations and the continuation of the individual could be a question that is really important that is well documented. So certainly here in the UK, the expectation was that if you were applying F&P to a new population, there would be policy around, so how did we identify who our MLPs were? It's more transparent with your SMs, but how do we identify them? And what is the process? Who owns that process? What part does each individual play? And you've alluded to compliance, HR. Is it the line manager that is the initial assessor of the individual's competence who then pushes it up to a more centralised review? Or is it a central review that then pushes down information to individuals? So I think there's all of that in terms of how that process is going to work. And then there's a piece as to what is acceptable. And actually, whichever way the assessment goes, whether it's in the positive or in the negative, there needs to be some kind of calibration there, depending on how it runs. So for example, if it's the line managers, and there are lots of them signing off lots of people for this, then there is a danger, obviously, that you get a different approach. You might get leniency or some people might be harder. So there needs to be some kind of oversight and calibration of consistency. If you have a centralised process, then obviously you need an appeals process as well from the individual and the manager. So I think there's an awful lot of things that people need to think about, but it's all that logical stuff that they probably do anyway for different populations with slightly different circumstances. So it's just pulling through the, right, what is my logic and rationale for my approach? How do I identify my people? What will they be subject to? Who will be making those assessments? What is the appeals process? And how are my records and my ongoing management going to continue? Julie, who should assess the fitness and probity of an individual? So I I made that distinction as in, you know, Mm. some firms allow the line manager to make the initial assessment because surely they are the one closest to that individual. However, there were concerns in some organisations or because their risk profile was different that they didn't want that. They didn't want that closest relationship to be the decision maker. So it would sit somewhere in compliance or risk or HR or a combination. But I think one thing to note, and I don't think it's something that was so much of a focus in the UK that has subsequently been reported on, and that is whichever decision is made and whichever route is made, how has the firm assured itself that the assessors of this process are suitably competent to undertake that role if they're not regularly doing that in a prior role? And I think that's something to consider here as well. And what about assessing the competency and capabilities of senior managers? So, you know, F&P in the UK has always been a prerequisite for a very long time for any senior manager that seeks regulatory approval. So it's always been as part of the recruitment process or part of the the career progression process. And typically that F&P would be an HR team gathering together that very personal data about the individual and likely to have a risk and or compliance lens overlaid to make a decision as an organisation. Because effectively, if you're an organisation and you are having to submit somebody to the regulator or you're registering them, as you have to do in many jurisdictions, 
it says something about your firm, the type of person that you put up as a request for a senior manager, certainly in the UK, or as a post-registration individual elsewhere. You need to have that collegiate approach where you've got HR doing the people thing, and then you've got those overlaying that lens and saying, actually, we've got this the full picture of in, this individual as our investigation tells us, be what we found out through the interview process and the recruitment process. Now, is that sufficient? And are we happy to put our name to that and say to the regulator, we're happy with that person? So there's a consideration there. Julie, in podcast one, you touched upon some of the lessons FIs could learn from their UK counterparts. But are there any other key learnings FIs could take away from the implementation of SMCR? I'll focus in on one particular one at inception and then one Natalie in BAU. And one of the biggest problems was actually the identification. Now, you have a, a regulatory description. So in Singapore, we have material risk personnel. In the UK, there were a number of different areas where they had to identify. And it can be really challenging because... So you'll have some organisations where you have individuals that absolutely, definitely want to be identified as one of those because they see it as prestigious. They believe it might come with a pay rise. They think it might help them with their future promotion, either within the firm or outside of it. And then you've got others that think that there's a level of risk that personally they don't want to take. So they'll try and persuade you that they're not one of those people. So you have all of those different things going on. So you have to have a very robust mechanism and looking at that regulatory description and saying in the context of our business and how we operate, what does that mean to us? And therefore, what potential functions might have these people in? And then laterally within each of those functions, which of those job roles might come under that categorization? A real challenge and having enough resource and having enough knowledge of regulatory expertise and organisational design through the structure of the organisation, those are really challenges to, to identify that. And then the second thing is the BAU, which won't be on anybody's mind right now because they're just getting into the beginnings of the regime. And that piece that says we've got so much focus, we've got a big project team, we've got lots of support, we might have some contract staff, and we're gearing up for our, our implementation. And there is one thing doing this once at the beginning when you start the process. It's a very different thing when you've got to do it every year on a regular basis for lots of people. So thinking in the here and now, what are you learning in implementation and what resource requirements might you have? What tech might you need? What expertise might you need on an ongoing basis that you might have currently that will help you once you get past implementation and you're into BAU? Technology has a role in helping FIs not just be compliant with MAS's guidelines, but drive meaningful behavioural change. Well, I guess as a reg tech supplier, we're obviously going to say we believe it's critical. And some people in the UK will absolutely support that. And some will still be a little bit cynical. But let me explain why. What we've seen with SMCR, both in the banking sector and latterly in the investment and consumer credit sector, is that the anything to do with an accountability regime, the records and the processing grow exponentially. And what might seem manageable and doable 
on day one become a very different thing when you are a year or two into the process because you've got so many moving parts. Because if your senior managers move, their accountabilities move, the governance of the organisation moves constantly, and then a regular turnover of people needing fitness and probity assessments and regulatory references through the recruitment process. So what you'll find is that your records will build and build and they will get to the point where they become an unmanageable regulatory burden. Whereas if you can become tech-enabled at outset with the mindset of we will make this process not just a compliance one, but an opportunity to improve maybe something within our organisations that maybe we need to deal with. And that could be the way that training is recorded, the way people are asked to do certain training, maybe the performance appraisal process needs improving. And, uh, you know, tech can help wrap that up. But I think what we've seen is that latterly firms come to us because processes have broken down. They found that the spreadsheet has got too big and one individual can't manage it. So rather than employ another individual, they'll look at the tech spend because it can save money and it can de-risk things. So let's leave our listeners on a high, Julie, with a final question. What's the upside of Maz's IAC guidelines for FIs? So a number of points, really. Without a shadow of a doubt, every one of our UK clients will tell a Singapore colleague that it was really difficult and it was really challenging. And it was because the UK was the first to obviously put that kind of accountability regime in. But what we found was that it improved so many things. So by virtue of the fact that a business has to go through and go, okay, let's have a look at all of our senior people. Let's have a look at their job roles. Let's have a look at the key business areas that they are accountable for. And then let's look at a more granular level and then match everything up against each other and see whether we've got any underlaps or overlaps. So that was a really good focus point for firms in the UK. Senior managers say that they feel that they are clearer about that for which they are accountable for. The other thing that we found was the piece around corporate governance and the fact that as part of the regime, you have to revisit your board, your exco and your committees of the board. You need to revisit those people that sit on those committees, those people that are either members, have voting rights or are attendees, whether your terms of reference are fit for purpose, whether those committees deliver what they should do. And I think going through that process, what our firms would say is actually it's really improved the governance arrangements within the firm match that with a greater level of clarity around individual accountability that our firms will tell you that there have been no end of benefits to implementing the regime in the UK. Thanks, Julian. Thank you for listening to the second part of this two-part podcast series on Maz's IEC guidelines. If you missed part one of this series, fear not. You can download it alongside other podcasts and webinars on conduct, culture and accountability anytime from the insight section of our website, worksmart.co.uk. Worksmart has extensive experience advising international financial institutions on their implementation of similar accountability regimes elsewhere in the world and would be delighted to assist you in working through the implementation of the ISE guidelines in the context of your business. For further information, please reach out to Julie Pardy via email, julie.pardy at worksmart.co.uk.